the Christian ministry with an inquiry into the causes of its inefficiency by Charles Bridges. Part 3. The Causes of Ministerial Inefficiency Connected with Our Personal Character Continued. Chapter 3. The Fear of Man What conscientious minister is not painfully reminded of the truth of the inspired aphorism, The fear of man bringeth a snare? Perhaps no temptation is more specious in its character, or more subtle and diversified in its operation. Its connection with worldly conformity is sufficiently evident from the recollection of his paralyzing influence upon ministerial boldness. Mr. Scott, in his early ministry, appears to have suffered severely from this temptation. Quote, this, he observes, is the last victory the Christian gains. Here I find my own deficiency, as much or more than in any other respect. And often I feel an inward timidity when about to preach upon an unpopular doctrine or expose a foible which some one of my congregation, whom I otherwise love and esteem, is remarkable for. And in every instance I feel the greatest reluctancy to resign the good opinion or act contrary to the judgment of those for whom I have esteem. It is true I am peculiarly bound to strive against this by reason of my ministerial office. I am to speak boldly, not as a man-pleaser, but as the servant of God. And therefore I endeavor to master all these fears, to act implicitly, as my conscience suggests, without respect of persons. Conformity to others in things unchristian, the fear of man, a servile spirit of time-serving, etc., are the faults of ministers and effectually hinder even those that desire it from performing the most important parts of their ministry, both in public preaching and by private application. But this kind of spirit goeth not out, but by a very spiritual and devout course of life. Indeed, its expulsion is the gift of God, and is especially to be sought for from Him. End quote. There are few of us of Lavater's self-observant stamp, but will have some sympathy with this graphical delineation. In our public ministrations, as with Mr. Scott, conviction of duty is often almost sacrificed to it. Subjects uncongenial to the taste and habits of influential men in our congregation are passed by, or held back from their just and offensive prominence, or touched with the tenderest scrupulosity, or expanded with wide and undefined generalities, so that the sermons, like letters put into the post office without a direction, are addressed to no one. No one owns them. No one feels any personal interest in their contents. Thus a minister under this deteriorating influence chiefly deals in general truths devoid of particular application, more in what is pleasing than what is direct and useful. Many other subjects may be equally necessary or indeed more important, but these are more conciliating. There is thus a continual conflict between conscience and the world, I ought to speak for conscience' sake, but I dare not speak for fear of the world. The offensive truth must be smoothed, disguised, and intermixed, 
until it is attenuated into an insipid, pointless, and inoperative statement. The spirit of cold refinement which gives occasion to this compromising ministration is one of the most baneful hindrances to our efficiency. Whether in or out of the church, it is the real spirit of the world. It will tolerate and even approve a modified system of evangelical truth, while the entire and unflinching presentment of the gospel in its native simplicity and spirituality is unacceptable. Mr. Cecil remarks, There is too much of a low, managing, contriving, maneuvering temper of mind among us. We are laying ourselves out, more than is expedient, to meet one man's taste and another man's prejudices. The ministry is a grand and holy affair, and it should find in us a simple habit of spirit and a holy but humble indifference to all consequences. Our general ministration is also sore let and hindered by this principle. Indeed, the subterfuges of cowardice and self-deception are endless when the wisdom of this world has begun to prevail against the simplicity of faith. How seldom do the rich and poor share alike in the faithfulness of ministerial reproof. How hard is it, instead of receiving honor one of another, to seek the honor that cometh from God only? How ready are we to listen to cautions from influential quarters against excessive zeal? How much more afraid are we of others going too far than of coming short ourselves of the full requisitions of the scriptural standard? Sometimes preferring intercourse with our brethren of a lower standard, or even with the world, rather than with those whose ministry more distinctly bears the mark of the cross. In how many cases of conviction is the light hid under a bushel or exhibited only to the friends of the gospel? How many shrink from witnessing a good confession except under the shelter of some great name? How often are opportunities of usefulness neglected and the endurance of afflictions and making full proof of our ministry avoided from the fear of the cross? We cannot, we say, do all at once. We hope to gain our point by little and little. We dare not, therefore, by taking a bold step upon the impulse of the moment, close the avenues of distant and important advantage. But does our conscience clear us of a desire to follow our Master without taking up the daily cross? Are we not afraid of being fools for Christ's sake? Do we not sometimes become all things to all men when we ought to remember that, if we yet please men, we cannot be the servants of Christ? Christian prudence indeed is most valuable in its own place, connection, and measure, but the want of it brings with it great inconvenience. But except it be the exercise of faith, combined with boldness and encircled with a warm atmosphere of Christian love, it will degenerate and become the time-serving spirit of the world. The fear of man often assumes the name of prudence, while a worldly spirit of unbelief is the dominant, though disguised, principle. But the fear of the professing church is also a serious part of this temptation. 
We are afraid to exhibit the doctrines of grace and their fullness and prominence, lest we should be thought unmindful of the enforcement of practical obligation. The freeness of the gospel invitations and the unreserved display of evangelical privilege are often fettered by the apprehension of giving indulgence to antinomian licentiousness. The fear of the imputation of legality restrains the detailed exposition of relative duties. What further proof need we of the baneful influence of this temptation than the recollection of the two apostles beguiled for a short moment to deny the faith of the gospel? With me, said another apostle to his people, whose determined resistance to the weakness of his brethren was the honored means of their restoration, It is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. He that judgeth me is the Lord. Indeed, the want of singleness of aim obscures the work of grace in our own hearts. Nor can we maintain our peace of mind except we feel that we have but one to please, that one is our master, even Christ. Nor is this supreme regard to our great master less important as ensuring the success of our work. Where the truth is imprisoned, if not in unrighteousness, yet in unbelief, there must be a want of power upon ministration. The direct violation of Christian integrity has a necessary tendency to enfeeble exertion by diverting our mind from that main object which should be always directing our whole time and energies and compared with which every other object is utterly unimportant, the edification and salvation of our people. The voice of conscience and duty speaks with a weaker tone in a worldly atmosphere. The habits of self-indulgence are strengthened, and the exercises of self-denial proportionably diminished in frequency and effectiveness. Thus, as the heart is more in the world, it is less in our work. Our duties are consequently performed with reluctance and unproductive in their results. Though we would by no means advocate indiscretion, yet well-intentioned imprudence is far better than the frigid wisdom of this world. And it will invariably be found that those that act openly with an honest freedom, though they may probably commit mistakes, will be generally borne out and find their path ultimately smoothed. While the temporizing spirit that aims to please both God and man will meet with disappointment from both. Where God is not honored, he will not honor And, in defect of becoming Christian boldness, our people, under the influence of our example, will sink into the same benumbed spirit, while their confidence in us will be materially weakened by the manifest evidence of our inefficiency and unfruitfulness. No less than four times in a single verse does God warn his prophet against this besetting temptation. At another time, he threatens his timid messenger with utter confusion. Yet let the servant of God gird himself with his Christian panoply, and he will find ample provision made for his complete success. Let him study more deeply the high dignity of his glorious ministry. 
let him seek to realize the presence of his heavenly master walking in the midst of the golden candlesticks, to direct, invigorate, and uphold the angels of his churches. Let him associate himself with those ministers who are delivered from this degrading bondage and professing a good profession before many witnesses. Let him call out his Christian principles into more uniform and active operation. The fear of God will subjugate the fear of man. And however strong the confederacy, if he sanctify the Lord of hosts, he will be a sanctuary to him. Faith exercised in simplicity will bring to view an invisible and present God, a covering in the endurance of the cross even from the wrath of the king. Thus, while the fear of man bringeth a snare, it is written, Whoso trusteth in the Lord shall be safe. Chapter 4 The Want of Christian Self-Denial It may be generally remarked that unless our work exhibit the self-denying character of the cross of Christ, it is the Christian ministry in the letter only, not in the spirit. It is not the work that God is engaged to bless. The motives to this ministerial principle, were it not for the strong counteracting current, would be irresistible. The impressive solemnity of ordination, in which we voluntarily bound ourselves to lay aside the study of the world and the flesh, might be thought to give at the very outset an impulse to a course of habitual self-denial in our consecration to the service of God. But the continual struggle with natural self-indulgence and the influence of old habits, perhaps the habits of our former unconverted state, fearfully operate to lower the scriptural standard of exertion. The cultivation, therefore, and exercise of this habit are the springs of the most beneficial activity, and the want, or the enervation of it, proportionably relaxes the operation of our high motives and encouragements. Archbishop Leighton admirably sets forth John the Baptist as an example to ministers of the gospel. Quote, to live, as much as may be in their condition and station, disengaged from the world, not following the vain delights and ways of it, not bathing in the solaces and pleasures of earth and entangling themselves in the care of it, but sober and modest and mortified in their way of living, making it their main business not to please the flesh, but to do service to their Lord to walk in his ways and prepare his way for him in the hearts of his people. The Apostle sets before us the habitual temperance of the wrestler as the illustration of his own ministerial exercises and as the safeguard to preserve his own steadfastness, the necessity for which was in no respect diminished by his high Christian attainments. The missionary Eliot is said to have, quote, become so nailed to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that the grandeurs of this world were unto him just what they would be to a dying man. He persecuted the lust of the flesh with a continual antipathy, 
And when he had thought that a minister had made much of himself, he has gone to him with that speech, Study mortification, brother, study mortification. End quote. We might indeed apply the Apostle's remark on a subject not wholly dissimilar. If a man know not how to rule his own self, how shall he take care of the church of God? Fidelity to God requires the abridgment or relinquishment of whatever is inconsistent with giving himself continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. He may escape, indeed, the pollutions that are in the world through lust, but the subtle indulgence of sloth or levity still besets him with an influence as injurious as worldly dissipation. But to illustrate this important habit more in detail, it should be visible in our manners and communication with our people. The ordinary remove of a young minister from the university to a country parish brings him into a new world. His intercourse, hitherto conducted with men on his own level, men of good breeding, education, and intelligence, must now be exchanged for contact with men of unfurnished minds and engaged in pursuits utterly uncongenial with taste and refinement. Nor is he at liberty, as in the common walks of life, to decline their intercourse. He has bound himself by the deepest responsibility to live for them and with them on terms not only of consideration and respect, but of mutual confidence and love. He must therefore deny himself to condescend to men of low estate. He must acquaint himself with their manners, their modes of thinking and expression, and their connections with one another, in order to bring them under the direct influence of pastoral instruction. The dignified condescension of our Divine Master's ministry furnishes the best pattern for his servants. He spake the words unto the people, not as in his infinite wisdom he was able to speak, but as they, in their infantine state of intelligence, were able to hear. And he invited them to learn of him in the assurance that he was meek and lowly in heart. The want of conformity to this pattern shuts up the avenues of confidence and, consequently, the prospects of success. It gives a force of repulsion rather than of attraction to ministerial intercourse. The rough places, instead of being made smooth, are made more rough and impervious. The duties of the ministry will constantly exercise Christian self-denial. Thus it was with our Master. His food and rest were even foregone or forgotten in his absorbing delight in saving souls. Seasons of necessary retirement were interrupted without an upbraiding word. Hunger, thirst, cold, or fatigue set no bounds to the determined forgetfulness of himself. How uniformly also did the great apostle prefer the spiritual advantage of his people to his own personal comfort, a pattern for us in the daily sacrifice of our ease, convenience, and legitimate indulgence.
As regards the visitation of the sick, it was said of Mr. Grimshaw, could it be said of many of us, that, quote, night and day were the same to him. He has been known to walk several miles in the night, in storms of snow, when few people would venture out of their doors to visit a sick person, end quote. We must be the pastors of the whole flock, not of a select few, not indulging ourselves with the most hopeful and interesting, but laboring for those whose urgent need cries loudly for our instruction, like the Good Shepherd, bestowing our primary attention upon the lost sheep. In detail, we shall often have to bear much from their ignorance and weakness, sometimes also from their impertinence and unreasonable demands. But the grand object of winning their souls will restrain even the appearance of harshness or petulance, which might turn the lame and diseased out of the way when rather it ought to be healed. The meanest of our people must have his full share of our consideration. Let him have free access to us at proper or even at inconvenient times. Let us carefully weigh his every scruple and difficulty. What seems trifling to us may be important to him. His doubts and perplexities are sacred to him and require the same tender sensibility of treatment as if they were sacred to us. This exercise of sympathy will not only tell on the success of our ministry, but will also form us into a style of experimental preaching, which, quote, will be far more effective part of our furniture than any classical learning, or even than the critical knowledge of the scripture itself. Doddridge. There is also the imperceptibly growing tendency of old age to abated vigor and activity, which brings a chilling frost or damp upon our energies, and in various ways gives advantage to the ever-watchful enemy to counteract or paralyze a course of usefulness. Massillon speaks to this point with much impressiveness. Quote, Never, says he, Consider your ministry at any point of it as a situation of honorable repose. Think not of appropriating any time to yourself if you can, by a different application of it, preserve only one soul from perdition. Content not yourselves with going through your public and ordinary duties, after which we are ready to persuade ourselves that we are discharged from every other. Let not age itself, let not the long and active discharge of your ministerial avocations in which you have grown old suggest to you a legitimate reason for ceasing from the combat and of at length enjoying the repose to which, after so many years of labor, you may seem to be entitled. Rather, let your youth be renewed like the eagle. Zeal may supply powers which nature may in appearance refuse. These precious remains of decay are honorable to the ministry. Let not old age become a motive to any indulgence 
which may not be strictly consistent at the close of a life dedicated to the discharge of the pastoral obligations. Continue to abound in the work of the Lord. End quote. Self-denial must also control our ministerial study. The importance of the habit of study has been already noticed. But no less important is its control. From the literary education of clergymen, quote, It will easily be perceived that an ardor for extra-professional studies is a temptation exactly fitted to their situation or previously formed habits, and one by which they are more likely to be seduced than by others of a less specious appearance. And thus, the literary pursuits of a minister will in many cases afford a strong evidence of his religious character. Secular studies, however congenial to a person's taste or necessary for his recreation, cannot possibly be the chief object of any minister who is conscientiously devoted to his pastoral engagements. End quote. Wilkes. These remarks place the subject in a just light. The usefulness of these studies entirely depends upon their subordination to the main purpose. Holding the principal place, they tend to secularize our spirit, to engross our time, and to divert our attention from a primary regard to our people, who, in the lack of our watchful superintendence, are in danger of perishing in ignorance and sin. The vows of God, as Mr. Scott reminds us, are upon us. All our reading ought to be subservient to the immediate object of instruction. We may read any book, ancient or modern, sacred or profane, infidel, heretical, or what not, but always as ministers. To note such things, as may the better enable us to defend and plead for the truth as it is in Jesus, never merely for amusement or curiosity or love of learning, simply for its own sake or for the credit or advantages derived from it. End quote. Scott. No one attains remarkable eminence or success without a resolute and habitual self-denial in subordinating every secondary point to the primary object. Perhaps the highest praise for a minister of the gospel was given by Dr. Johnson when he remarked of Dr. Watts that, quote, whatever he took in hand was by his incessant solicitude for souls converted to theology, end quote. And indeed, this determined singleness of purpose is indispensable to a conscientious discharge of ministerial obligations. How fearful would be the responsibility of a soul passing into eternity, unregarded and uninstructed, while our minds were engaged in some pursuit of literature, taste, accomplishment, or even abstract theology? How self-convicting would be the confession? While thy servant was busy here and there, the man was gone. It is always dangerous to prefer the indulgence of study to the active exercises of the ministry, or at least to give ourselves to reading so as to neglect the work of pastoral instruction. 
These avocations are legitimate in their character, but criminal in their overindulgence. An engrossing attachment, preventing an entire self-devotedness of heart, though less scandalous, may prove eventually little less prejudicial to our usefulness than the palpable love of money or of pleasure. And therefore, quote, As to the waters which are drawn from these springs, how sweetly soever they may taste to the curious mind that thirsts for the applause which they sometimes procure, I fear there is often reason to pour them before the Lord with rivers of penitential tears, as the blood of souls which have been forgotten, while these trifles have been remembered and preserved. Doddridge. Such, as we have already remarked, was the godly jealousy of Henry Martin, lest his literary and theological pursuits for even theology, except it be made a spiritual study, may be a secularizing indulgence, should deaden his soul to his more holy exercises. The solemn ordination engagement impels us, if not to put away, yet at least to restrain within very contracted limits many matters of legitimate Christian interest, under the conviction, to use again the forcible words of Doddridge, who on this subject cannot be suspected of prejudice, that they employ a very large portion of our retired time and are studied rather as polite amusements to our own mind than as things which seem to have an apparent subserviency to the glory of God and the edification of our flock. And consequently, I fear they will stand as articles of abatement, if I may so express it in our final account, and when they come to be made manifest, will be found works that shall be burnt, as being no better in the divine esteem than wood, hay, or stubble. 1 Corinthians three twelve and 15. How beautifully soever they may have been garnished or gilded over. The best prospect of ministerial fruitfulness is, with the heavenly view of Leighton, to... Quote, count the whole world in comparison with the cross of Christ, one grand impertinence, end quote. And to be brought to the mind of Professor Frank at the period of his conversion, quote, whereas I had but too much idolized learning, I now perceive that all attainments at the feet of Gamaliel are to be valued like dung in comparison of the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. Christian self-denial must also be extended to clerical amusements and recreations. The amusements of gardening accomplishments need a watchful subordination. Mr. Cecil cut the strings of his violin and threw aside his painting brush when he detected his indulgence diverting his mind from present duty. Again, the recreation of farming pursued as a business, is surely an inconsistent entanglement with the affairs of this life. Quote, Let the ministry, as Mr. Scott exhorts us, have our whole time. Let even recreation and animal refreshment be so regulated, moderated, and subordinated that they may not interfere with our grand employment or unfit us for it but rather recruit and prepare us for it, that they may all become subservient to our main object. 
End quote. Neither mind nor body indeed can be sustained without moderate relaxation. But what spiritual self-observer does not feel the need for incessant watchfulness, lest the love of ease and pleasure should abate the relish for heavenly employments and consume that precious time, which ought to have been industriously devoted to our high calling? Archbishop Secker justly remarks, quote, Not all things that are lawful are expedient, and certainly these things, speaking of worldly amusements, further than they are in themselves requisite for health of body and refreshment of mind, or some really valuable purpose, are all a misemployment of our leisure hours, which we ought to set our people a pattern of filling up well. A minister of God's word, attentive to his duty, will neither have leisure for such dissipations, public or domestic, nor liking to them. End quote. And may not this self-denial apply to clerical attendance upon oratorios, musical festivals, and similar exhibitions? If our worldly parishioners who hear our pulpit remonstrances against the pursuit of this world's vanities should express surprise or pleasure at meeting us at such places, ought not our consciences to whisper a wholesome doubt respecting the expediency, to say the least, of our attendance? Much more, according to the rule just referred to, if our presence should give pain to a tender, or indeed, as in the case alluded to by the Apostle, a scrupulous conscience, ought we not to restrain? Admitting the legitimacy of the indulgence abstractedly, yet forbearance is the present duty, the neglect of which is a sin against our weak brethren, and therefore a sin against Christ. In doubtful cases, Christian love and self-denial dictate the straight and the safest path. Restraint is the natural and direct expression of love to the brethren. It saves us from the possible hazard of becoming stones of stumbling to those whom we ought to guide in the way of the cross. As an act of violence to our own inclination, at the supposed call of duty, it is also in the true spirit of our divine Master's injunction, deny thyself. And an exemplification of the practical rule, Brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Upon this principle, clergymen have been led to relinquish the amusement of shooting without attaching moral evil to this recreation, yet surely it does not exhibit the minister in his proper Levitical habits. Would not the transition be deemed somewhat violent to visit the sick and dying in the way home from shooting? Could we leave the dog and gun at the threshold and expect to realize in the sick chamber the nearness of eternity in its unspeakable horrors or its everlasting joys? Would not a shooting dress rather repel than invite a tempted conscience, seeking for spiritual counsel at our mouth? Or an awakened soul, anxious for an answer to the infinitely momentous question, What must I do to be saved? These holy employments, which seem peculiarly to call for an unction from above, or to suppose an habitual frame of spiritual aspiration, 
carry to the mind so manifest an incongruity with such a recreation that it is difficult to place its abandonment upon any less ground than of positive duty. It may be asked, what virtue is there in abstaining from things indifferent? Why, if convinced of their innocence, may we not act according to our own convictions, rather than according to the superstitions of others? But no man, especially no minister, liveth to himself. The strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please themselves. Will not an honest self-scrutiny detect a criminal fondness for pleasure? For what other principle could allow the habit of self-gratification at so serious a cost to the interests of others? To affect, by our conduct, to despise what appears to us weakness, scrupulosity, or prejudice, is the way rather to confirm than to cure the evil. While the sacredness of the ministerial standard is lowered with equal injury to ourselves and to the dignity and blessing of our work. The sum of what is offered for consideration is simply this. Whatever experience has proved to chill our fervor, to dissipate our mind, to divert our attention, or to occupy a large portion of time or interest, is the right eye that we are called to pluck out and cast from us. Far be it from the writer to advocate ascetic austerity. He would not render the bow useless by keeping it always bent. He would not forget that we are men as well as ministers, servants, and not slaves. But do we not warn our people that the love of any created object, interfering with our Savior's claims to supreme affection, ruins their hopes of salvation for eternity? And ought not we to remind ourselves that the attraction of mind to any one subject of interest, which diverts our minds from our consecrated employment, involves it in the positive guilt of unfaithfulness to our Master, must bring a curse instead of a blessing upon our ministry, and may well lead us to tremble for our ultimate safety. The devoted servant of God will find a measure of relaxation in turning from the more painful to the more soothing exercises of his work. Some total diversion will, however, occasionally be needed. And let him not suppose that his master requires labor when both his body and spirits demand rest. A wise management of diversion will tend rather to strengthen than to enervate the tone of his spiritual character and the power of his ministry. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things reformed. Note, some references and citations were passed over for greater ease of listening. The listener is referred to the original to access them.